welcome to An Evening with Nirvana, a podcast where I talk to a variety of guests from the Doom community about level design, map creation, and other facets of game development. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to American McGee. He's a level designer for Ultimate Doom, Doom 2, level and sound designer for Quake and Quake 2, and creator of the extremely popular Alice series of games. He's now also a designer of a unique range of plushies, and we'll get into those later. Welcome to the show, American. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, and I am doing quite all right, other than I'm suffering a little bit of a sore throat, so if I sound funny, that's why. That's okay. I have like a naturally kind of scratchy voice anyway, so I think people are used to it if they listen to the show at all. All right, well, they'll just assume we're both heavy smokers or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I used to smoke, actually, but uh, I managed to quit about 10 years ago. That's good. Same here. Nice. Co-quitters. I like it. <laughs> uh, I suppose I'll start out with a fairly basic question. Um, I usually ask people, how did you get into Doom at this point? But obviously that's <laughs> a bit of a different thing for you. Uh, I'm curious, like, what were the earliest sort of video games you remember that interested you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about a very long time ago, right? So yeah. when I first started playing games, we're, we're still back in you know, sort of the mid-80s, and I remember playing on game systems like the Odyssey, um, uh, which, you know, I can't even remember what the games there were, but there were sort of these rudimentary, you know, space flight um, games and sports games and Pong-type pong games, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got into messing around with, you know, the Apple, the Apple IIe, the Commodore 64, the Amiga. Um, and that, that kind of progressed. And throughout all of that, I played a whole variety of whatever games I could get my hands on. Um, but I, I don't remember anything really sort of sticking out to me until I stumbled on Wolfenstein. And by that time, I was uh, maybe 18 19 years old um, and I was working as a mechanic in a car shop and I, I was helping them to set up a PC in their office to take care of accounting and parts uh, ordering and things like that and I remember going to like a swap meet for computer parts and there was a shareware copy of Wolfenstein there and I remember when I when I popped that in something clicked in my brain that was like this is going to change the world you know this is Mm -hmm. so radically different from everything that's come before everything i've played before um and little did i know of course that i I would somehow magically end up you know having my life intersect directly with the guys who were making those games yeah it is i mean i know you've told the story before but it is like quite a unique way that you got involved with id uh could you just very briefly talk about how that happened If I had a dollar for every time I had to tell this story. Yeah, I'm sorry um, I didn't even ask. But... <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, the short and simple version of it is that I was a high school dropout. I was working as a car mechanic and that I ended up living in the same apartment complex as John Carmack. And so I would come home, you know, covered in grease um, and he would come home driving in a Ferrari. <laughs> but we ended up you know, we met and then we started playing games together. And at some point he invited me and some other people up to the id office to start testing on a new game they were making, which was Doom. And I managed to 
I don't know, impress him or something to the point where one day he took me aside and asked if I would like to have a full-time job working at id. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the moment where he did it, I wasn't even thinking that that was a possibility. I, I was too in awe of the thing. You know, it's sort of like being invited up to Mount Olympus by the gods themselves. And then one day one of them takes you aside and is like, hey, would you like to come work up here too? Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was a shock, but of course I said yes. And I started off doing tech support. So I was answering the phones for people who were having problems with, you know, the, the existing games um, that it had launched. And then I spent my time while I was answering phones, tinkering around inside of the level editor. Um, and, and with the other tools that were in the office for building games. And I, I quickly got to be proficient with level design such that when id, you know, naturally decided that the amount of tech support calls coming in could not be handled by myself and Sean Green in office. Um, that work was outsourced, but he and I had managed to, you know, train ourselves sufficiently to not be made redundant. So I, I got moved into working on level design work and he got moved into working on tech programming, programming work. Interesting. <laughs> I guess that's sort of how the games industry was back then a little bit, just um, discovering what talents people had and then putting them to work in those areas rather than, you know, looking at resumes and seeing they'd done studying and, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, I don't know what it's like trying to get into the industry these days, but I I know that when I was hiring people for Spicy Horse, um, I oftentimes cared more about their portfolio in terms of the work I could see and that I could touch and that I could play. Um, I cared more about that than I did, you know, where they went to school. So I, I've always maintained that, you know, it's better to look at, at the person's output or or even to look at the person's potential um, versus looking at their their degrees or whatever sort of paper um, they have with them. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to something that's a creative endeavor, I feel like often that is the more important aspect. Um, hold on, I'm just getting a little bit of background noise. I'll just fix it for a sec. Okay, should be all good. Um, yeah, I suppose it's interesting to me, you and Carmack sort of becoming friends uh, over the course of this and him seeing something in you. He sort of seemed to surround himself with these sort of very creative people. And obviously he's very creative in terms of programming, but maybe I sort of see the two of you as being a little oppositional in terms of like the kinds of things you would want to do. Uh like gameplay wise and things like that. Maybe that's incorrect to say, but that's the sense that I get. Yeah, well, I think that there's something to that. And I think that there's something to people being attracted to their opposites. Mm-hmm. And and for sure, I mean, where, you know, John would be considered technically, you know, an expert, um, there would be some that would say that, you know, my domain might be more on the creative side, on the writing side, you know. And so I think it was a good a good mix. Um, the same is true with John Romero and John Carmack. You know, the, the two personalities probably couldn't be more opposing, um, even more so than you could say with mine and Carmack's personalities. 
and yet there was something to it that made it work very well that partnership and uh, i think that that's that's often important you know we can't we we're not very good as human beings producing where there's a lack of pressure um, and oftentimes where there's a lack of friction that's important for us to be challenged um, to have people question what it is we're doing and to to push back because it's often when when someone's pushing back against us or how we would normally do something um, that it forces us to think about the solutions to that problem in a in a different way mm -hmm. and i i saw that a lot with john uh, carmack and i think he was he was right and he was very smart in surrounding him with, with himself with people who um who provided you know, not a not an easy environment. Like he could have surrounded himself with a bunch of other Carmax, but I I don't think that the result of that would have been anywhere near as um, interesting. And I think he's aware of that as well. Yeah, and I, when I talked to Sandy Peterson, he actually said that um, one thing he always noted about or admired, I suppose, about John Carmack was that uh, he would always be like very willing to admit when he was wrong about something. So, like, even if he was sort of leading uh, projects in a lot of ways, like, if somebody made him realize in, a, in that moment that he was incorrect, he would instantly be willing to sort of flip his position, which, which sounds like, you know, a beneficial thing to have as someone leading those types of projects. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I, I think you could also certainly find instances where he, like anyone else, um, could be stubborn uh you know sort of to a fault on certain issues so mm -hmm. and i but i i do think that the thing maybe that sandy's saying is that john could go both ways and i think it's important to be able to go both ways you know you you need to be able to recognize when you're wrong and admit it but you also need to be stubborn at those moments where you know that the path you're pursuing is the right one um it's it's in finding the balance and choosing one or the other at the right time that that makes a good leader or a good partner um you know to work with mm -hmm. and when sort of production with dune 2 started uh do you remember sort of what uh like the sort of original goals were for the game like compared to what they were doing with doom 1 do you remember sort of what the concept building was like for level design and things like that yeah, I mean, look, this is probably, again, one of those questions that's better for um, someone like Romero or, or someone like Sandy to answer. But what I recall was a very simple situation where we had a room where the artists were sat. That was Kevin and Adrian. And they would produce texture sets for us as individual level designers. Mm -hmm. And those texture sets... Um, I think they were kind of a product of what we were asking for and also what we were producing. So there there was sort of a, a synergistic back and forth that, you know, wow, American seems to make really good levels around this theme of stone and iron and lava. So let's give him more stone and iron and lava that suits <laughs> his style, yeah. um, where, you know, Sandy was making much more surrealistic and colorful levels. Uh, and John was making things that were much more heavily themed towards, you know, sort of gothic castle architecture and stuff like that. So the 
sort of design or production methodology really seemed to kind of focus around, um, you know, what what are these guys, um, what are they excelling at um, in terms of the type of production or content that they're making? What, was your question about Doom 2 or about Quake? Sorry. It was about Doom 2, but I think all of what you said oh, is, is applicable well, regardless, I think. Yeah, I think to some degree. Um, and, and I think that that carried over quite a bit. In, it definitely carried over into the way that Quake was getting made as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's true that in Doom 2, it was a sort of similar thing. I remember working with a lot of the these textures that the other designers didn't work with as much. And then also, you know, there were whole texture sets that John kind of worked in mainly and Sandy didn't touch as much and so forth and so on like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to hear about it because uh, I think everyone thinks of the id team as being all these singularly talented people together. Uh, and that's where all of the, like, positive aspects of the game comes from but it sounds like it's also down to maybe a production method that lended itself to promoting each individual person's like strengths as well yeah but i mean i don't think that you know any of that was done by design i think it was uh -huh. primarily by convenience um it was primarily because it was what worked you know you you're you're talking a language that didn't even exist back in that era of, you know, synergistic, holistic, everybody working together, you know, team. No, it just, it like, you, you have to also keep in mind that the guys sitting in that art room, Kevin and, and Adrian, they never came out of there. And it was like this weird, the lights were always off. It was kind of closed off. The doors were always closed. You, you kind of felt like you were going into another realm within <laughs> the office every time you went in there. So at least from my perspective, to suggest that there was an intentional managerial thought process that went towards trying to improve results by applying some sort of methodology. No, I don't think that was happening uh, <laughs> at, at all. I, I think it was more kind of seat of the pants combined with what what seems to be working and don't mess with it if it's working sure yeah and as somebody who didn't come i guess from like a quote-unquote schooled level design background how did you sort of go about building up a process for making maps so i bought a bunch of books on traditional or sort of classic architecture um, from the Roman era and then also from modern day architects. You know, I often mention when we do these interviews, um, there was, there's a Japanese architect called Tadeo Ando who does sort of um, works in concrete a lot. And if you go look up the, the designs of his buildings, you'll see why if you're a, a Doom or a Quake level designer, like why that guy's work would, would speak to you. Right. There's a kind of um, utility, like a utilitarian functionality combined with a, a playing with light to create an artistic space. So it's a space that's got a soul and a feeling to it. Mm -hmm. So he's he's really good at that. And I, I took a lot of inspiration from him. And then I combined it with this bunch of, you know, reference drawings and whatnot from eras of traditional um, or classic architecture. And that was, that was kind of where I, I got my 
my ideas from, where I got my my foundation from, and then I would kind of build on riff on top of that. Right, and I, this is one of those questions where you're probably going to be like, I do not remember at all, but uh, <laughs> out of the, the maps that you made for Doom 2, do you remember there being one that was like particularly enjoyable to work on, or, or one that you felt out, like felt stood out as being sort of particularly impressive? You know, I, <clears throat> yeah, it's just too long ago. I don't know. Yeah, that's totally fair. Are you... <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I, mean, I, uh... I, see, I often see other people online that'll, they'll go on and on about, oh, you're the guy that made, you know, uh, E, M, you know, M4, I don't know, you know. and I, So I just don't know anymore. Um, yeah, no, that's totally fair. Yeah. I mean, I like, I will ask people questions from the community who, you know, they didn't work on the original Doom, but they themselves have been making stuff for so long that even they are forgetting, like, what they made, because <laughs> sure. this game's, like, you know, 10, I mean, there's, you know, 20 years You know, ago. there's some of them um, that are iconic because everybody talks about them, like the one that had the big crusher element in it, which I, I think that was actually the name of the map was actually the crusher. Yep. Um so, I mean, you know, I remember making that map, and I remember that when I made maps, I used to do a lot of experimentation. I used to, I, I would experiment with enemy placement and barrel placement and physical things that could crush the enemies or the player. And, um, you know, I loved lava because there was sort of a multifunction aspect of light and damage to it. Um, and, you know, it's funny because there was a lot of work done for for me and I think the other level designers of experimentation that of course the general public never laid eyes on um but I really liked messing around in the in the engine just to you know kind of see what what could be done um and there's a lot of stuff that would just break the engine you know obviously so by the time anything made it into the game you always had to make sure that it it wasn't going to break the game um but in terms of like looking back, if you ask me what my favorite ever map was that I made while working at ID, um, and about the process of it, for sure, the the my favorite result and also my favorite process was DM4, which was a Quake deathmatch map, and that's because it, I built it in a day, and also it was for me it was one of the most fun things to play. Um, play deathmatch in. So I, I was always very proud of that, and I, I got the sense that a lot of other people liked that one as well, so um, that, that would be high on the list. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, because uh, I think you did some beta testing for the original Doom, uh, was it kind of weird uh, coming back? Because, I mean, you did Doom 2, and then you came back to do Ultimate Doom uh, as well. Uh, was it strange coming back into that game as someone who didn't build levels for it originally and then adding on this extra episode? Well, look, the whole experience was weird. Yeah. I, you know, again, being invited, like I said, the analogy of, you know, hey, kid, come up here and work with us on Mount Olympus. Uh -huh. um, you know, there were whole periods of time I would just go into work and couldn't even believe that I was there or, you know, that, it, that any of it was real, um, much less that, you know, yeah, wow, you know, I liked that Doom game, and now I'm getting to work on that Doom game, and oh, now we're going to go back and do level packs for the Doom game, and yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And 
I guess that fourth episode is like uh pretty challenging comparatively uh to the the rest of the game. Uh and your opening map for it, which you most likely don't even remember at this point, but it is uh it's quite a challenging opening map. Uh I guess like with you know, the birth of, like, the Souls-like genre and things like that, bringing difficulty back into the forefront of design, I feel like, these days. Do you have, like, particular preferences or thoughts about difficulty in in game? Well, so I know that this is... I've had people tell me... Like, I've had people tweet at me things along the lines of, you know, E4M1, damn you, or go, you go to hell, or, you know, how dare you. So I, I know I know the the legend of this map, and I know that people... Um, think it's funny to, you know, sort of berate me for it being so difficult. Um, but I, I do recall that when we got around to making this as an add-on pack, there was some discussion that, like, let's just go all out. Let's just make this kind of crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so we did. And And, of course, for us playing internally, you know, we'd sit there all day over and over and over playing these things and we we got to be pretty good so you know if something was difficult for us it meant it was going to be really difficult for your average player and um, i think a map like this would be the the typical result but going forward as i went off to make my own games um and when we do our uh, like I'll, i'll live stream playing like alice madness returns and I'm sitting there cursing myself for some of the sections that are too difficult. And I I actually believe that, in general, the games industry has a, a sort of gatekeeping problem of making games that are, that are difficult for the kind of average non-gamer to get into. Um, and not just because, like, you know, the level kills you quickly or there's some really mean traps that you've set up, but just the expectation of the the basic knowledge that a person has to have in order to get into gaming these days on a, on a modern console. And I think that no matter how much, you know, a game tries to get someone into a tutorial um, and understanding a control scheme. I mean, a lot of times these control schemes end up being like you're playing a fricking saxophone, you know, just to (laughs) get your guy to move through the game space and stay alive. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, I think for my games, um, when I'm when I'm setting out and trying to say to people how we're going to build these things, you know, I'd like to build AAA looking, super awesome story, you know, really compelling games, but that basically play very casually. Um, I, and and to further that, I've even had the thought at times that we might get to a point where the characters that we are driving inside of these games take on you know a sort of ai awareness of their own so that you could have a mode in which if you try to push a character off a cliff or into a situation they're not prepared for they could turn around face the camera and be like i'm not doing that yet you know i'm not ready for that or don't what do you Mm. what are you trying to get me killed you know (laughs) and so you know that's that's how far i would push it i would push it to like a casual game where you're sort of partnered up with the character on screen and that character wants you to be better so you don't repeatedly murder them right Mm -hmm. and i'm assuming this kind of mentality uh ends up influencing like your testing process for games as well do you tend to have 
these sort of ideas about difficulty like be heavily enforced when you do testing and stuff well yeah but you know the problem if you want to call it a problem is hmm. that game development is a team effort it's a collaboration and so if you look at say for example alice madness returns you know there were a lot of different voices on that team um some of whom didn't want for the game to be overly casual um, mm -hmm. They wanted there to be some fair degree of difficulty in there, and so a lot of times you end up in a in a place where you're you're making compromises, um, and that's certainly where, you know, we ended up on the original Alice game and where we ended up on Madness Returns. I don't take uh, an approach of like I'm the ultimate dictator of everything that's going to be in this game um, when we're doing games, and that that extends to this question of like. If you did give me that ultimate control, I would definitely push to make the games super casual mm -hmm. um, in terms of difficulty level. But I, you know, I always set out from the start when we're building these things to tell the team that it's a group effort and everybody's got a voice. And, you know, if I get voted down on difficulty level, then I get voted down and I, I have to be consistent. Yeah, of course. Um just to uh, to go back i suppose to quake uh i think when i when i talked to sandy he s sort of talked about how quake and doom were being developed simultaneously and how that made things kind of difficult w what was the transitional period for you like between working on those two games well it wasn't difficult for me because i got pulled off of doom and i got put almost exclusively to work on quake uh -huh. so I was John's testing assistant, or I don't know how you'd call it, but basically he was building the tools and the technology for Quake, and I was sitting there day in, day out, working inside of the tools to build stuff and then give him feedback and build stuff and give him feedback. And, and then I also started to pick up some of the development tools to start working alongside him on scripting and, you know, editor stuff. and so that i wasn't i wasn't bothered by it because i was the first one to transition over to working on what became quake and the mm -hmm. tools that made quake what it is and you sort of had a multi sort of purpose role i guess doing like level design and sound design and, and tools and, and things like that how <laughs> how did you manage to sort of balance all those different roles was this well, obviously CD I pants kind of thing <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I got fired. So oh, right. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> well. clearly, I wasn't balancing those roles very well. I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah, at the time, I was having a blast. I, I, I loved it. I was wearing a bunch of different hats, and um, I was having a lot of fun. But, you know, I think I was also heading towards some degree of burnout, and yeah. uh, I was getting a little bit too wild in my extracurricular activities away from work. Um, <clears throat> so. But yeah, there was a period of time there that was really fun. Uh, I was working with the Nine Inch Nails and the Marilyn Manson guys in New Orleans. I'd go down there and, you know, do sound and music sessions with them and then bring that content back to Dallas and drop all that in the game and write, you know, the scripting to get the sounds working with the weapons and then putting that into the levels and um, doing sound effect editing and creation. And, you know, it, it was a blast. I was having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, so 
yeah, I mean, that, that to me, I think that was the pinnacle, kind of the height of my having a, having sort of fingers in lots of different pieces of making one game. Um, and it, it was great. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot to take on, but um, also, yeah, it does sound like maybe uh, you did, like, it sounds like you did a lot of learning during that period in terms of uh, game design <laughs> that you would probably utilize a lot later on, so beneficial in the end well yeah i think in terms of game production um and everything that goes into production it it was incredibly beneficial because i got to have a glimpse of many of the different skill sets or stacks that make you know a development go forward um so that was good mm -hmm. and in terms of sort of like the overarching elements of, of quake and and i guess games that it in general uh did the team generally tend to figure these things out together, like, or was it usually left to people like Comic and Romero? To figure out what exactly? I guess, like, the, you know, like, the thematic elements of a game, or, you know, I guess there um, wasn't much story, but, you know, the sort of more overarching elements. Yeah, I never really understood where that came from. Um, I... And I've said this in previous interviews, theoretically or supposedly there were some meetings where we sat down and I, I seem to vaguely remember like one or two design focused meetings where there was this sort of this discussion of like, all right, we're making, you know, Doom 2 or we're going to make Quake 2 and this is the, the general outline of it. But it often felt like for me just kind of sitting there making maps, none of that mattered because again i was just being handed texture sets that i was comfortable working with and told to make a thing that had an, a beginning middle and end as a level and you know i i think i kind of understood that later on that would all be stitched together into something but that wasn't my job my job wasn't to stitch it all together my job was to create map content and that's that's kind of what i was doing you know it's it's different when you're building a game where the the narrative arc for a particular level is like the door opens, you shoot your gun a lot, you kill a lot of monsters, <laughs> um, you you traverse some geography, you get to the end point, the level ends. I mean, you know, it's not like there's a checkpoint in there where, oh, this is, you know, chapter three, it's that scene where the space marine talks to this guy. No, there, there was yeah. nothing like that. You know, so again, I mean, a lot of times I hear people asking these questions, but these questions feel like they would be more appropriate for an era of development that hadn't really started yet. Sure, and, yeah. and so it, it was it was just kind of um, we built it and then we tacked it all together and we shipped it. And what do you think maybe partially like obviously tensions were quite high during that period and everything and you know whatever happened happened but was there also maybe a sense for you that you wanted to move into producing your own games no 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 again it, you know everything to me was like this surreal dream where similar to i couldn't have imagined that i could even get a job there so i wouldn't even have dreamt it much less asked somebody can i get a job here sure. once i was in the door I mean, I don't know how to describe the feeling. It's not confusion, but it's a sort of you don't want to say or do anything to make people aware that maybe you shouldn't even be there. <laughs> so, so being so an like, adult. 
you, you know, you don't even bring up or like rock the boat, maybe. I, I don't know. So I just, you know, once I was there, I kind of had it in my mind that like, maybe I'll just work here for the rest of my life. I don't know, because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that there could be possibly anything beyond this. What could be better? Um, and so I, I wasn't at all thinking like anything about, oh, I want to make my own games or, you know, is there life after it? I didn't have any, <clears throat> any sort of thoughts like that at all. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, remember also, I was only 23 years old. Yeah. <laughs> was I supposed to, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely a, a weird, surreal thing, but also maybe how everyone is in adulthood anyway. Uh, yeah, just be there, pretend you know what's going on, you know, figure things out as you go, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So how did I guess like moving on to Alice? How did it? How did it feel? Moving from I guess creating levels for games that were entirely focused on gameplay and like you said, very limited story wise to I guess like crafting a, a richer narrative. Well, I was fortunate to team up with the guys that had been down the hall from id working on using the technology to build games that were better put together, that did have story and that did have, you know, proper story arcs and character arcs and things like that. That was the guys at Rogue Entertainment and they had already been doing narrative driven games inside of the Doom engine while we at id were doing just action games inside of the doom engine right mm -hmm. um so <clears throat> when when it came time you know that the, the opportunity was handed to me to go make my own game um a lot of the pieces kind of just fell into place where you know the notion of alice in wonderland came up and then you know this kind of dark gothic art style and then i you know i had some ideas um with rj berg about you know, the story and how that might relate to my personal um, narrative, like my my experiences in life. And and then as we were thinking about developers, you know, the top of the list were my friends at Rogue. And I knew that they had the experience with the technology plus the experience with crafting story-driven games that would make this thing shine. And so all those pieces came together. And of course, it was a much different way of developing and i had to learn a lot i learned a lot from rj um that was my production partner at ea and he was the writer on you know the, on the first and second alice games um and he taught me you know all about how to organize the the thoughts and the goals for the story around a script and how to build that into the planning for the game and of course the rogue guys drove a lot of that as well because they understood what was required if you've got a story and how you want to break that down into being a game. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was, again, it's all, it all goes back to collaboration and a team effort. And we were really lucky to have people like RJ and people at Rogue, like Rich and like Jim, um, who, who they knew this stuff already. Right. And so, yeah, it, it just worked out really well. Mm -hmm. So uh, did the, I guess did the like design process for this game begin with story then, and then the story elements sparked gameplay concepts, or did that all sort of happen fairly simultaneously? Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing that was a big difference between how, say, the the Doom era that I worked in 
functioned and how we did this one where on the Doom stuff, it was make the levels and then slap the story on at the end. Mm-hmm. And with Alice, it was we did the story and, you know, art and the characters and all this stuff first. And then we started talking about how to make the levels and how to build the game around that. Right. So, um, yeah, it was it was a very different process. Mm-hmm. And I guess we like we talked a little bit uh, about getting uh, traumatic experiences out and finding ways to sort of deal with them externally. And I guess Alice is obviously a, a game sort of centered around grappling with psychological demons in like a tangible way. Um, was that sort of, uh, cause I guess you've talked about how you built that process of dealing with that sort of those traumatic experiences and, and memories and things over the course of your life. Was this early beginnings of, dealing with that or were you already sort of was this just part of that process well i had already been doing um some of that kind of work and uh and thinking about creation the creative process as a way of working through you know whether you want to call it like a childhood traumas or, or or whatever but working through your issues yeah and um and so yeah, I mean, this was the first time I was able to sit down and sort of apply that. I, prior to Alice, I actually spent some time working with the author Michael Crichton on another game that ultimately was published by IDOS, but it meant that I got to spend a lot of time talking with him and traveling with him on his sort of creative process and how he did this sort of stuff. And that, that also helped to kind of get it in my head that, you know what I really want to be is is like this guy because this guy, you know, he's the creator of ER, the TV mm-hmm. show, and Jurassic Park, the movie series, and he's making games and he's making all. Mm-hmm. And I I really admired him uh, for his you know creative output, his creative ability. It was just all over the place where he was able to create, and I really liked that. So that I think that was one of the the bigger inspirations after ID for me to say. Okay, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not at it anymore, obviously, but what do I want to be? Who do I want to be? And I just remember meeting him and spending time with him was very, um, I think, transformative for me um, to see a person living that kind of life and, and that I looked up to and thought, hey, you know, this is really cool. This is something like this is cooler than anything I've messed with in the past, even, you know, Hollywood right. and, and all this stuff. Um, so that that had a big impact on me. Mm-hmm. And. I uh, I guess moving on to Spicy Horse, reading about the founding of that company, I, I found it interesting that you found that a lot of people in China were sort of working as outsourced talent for Western companies. And um, from what I can gather, you sort of wanted to utilize that talent for, you know, making original games. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit just about the experience of moving over to China and, and making use of that talent. Yeah, well, the... The China stuff happened, I don't know, a little bit almost accidentally. Um, but I, you know, I originally went to Hong Kong um, at the request of a publisher there who had had funded the development of a game called Bad Day LA. And um, that's a whole podcast and a whole story in itself. But the the move to Hong Kong was one thing, and I kind of had my eyes on that, that I, I was being very narrow in my vision because, you know, what I didn't realize is Hong Kong is right on the doorstep of mainland China. Mm-hmm. And that 
when I first started traveling into mainland China, I was shocked. I was like, wow, this is wild. You know, just the pace of everything and the people and the talent. And then nobody in the world was talking about it, except when I got to Shanghai, I realized like, oh, IDOS is here. EA is here. Sony is here. Mm -hmm. Microsoft is here. All these companies are here. And they all have these huge outsource production companies, hundreds, sometimes thousands of employees that are building the assets that go into all the products that we play as games or use as software or whatever, right? Yeah. And I started meeting people who were working in these big teams, and I found that a lot of them had their own dreams and desires to to work on games where they they were higher up and had a you know more more creative input into what was getting made, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that sort of kicked off this this idea in my mind that um, there was something interesting that could be done in China, and that that happened to line up magically with a, an offer from um, GameTap, the company, with them calling up and saying, "Hey, we want you to make a game for us," and. Um, I said, well, if I'm going to do that, is it okay if I do it by building a new studio in China? And I thought they were going to say no, right? <laughs> Which would have been the sensible right. thing. Um, and they came back and they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. Go for it. Um, and I, I was shocked. You know, I just thought, like, really? You're going to send me, like, $3 million, you know, to just build a whole company over here in China? And all right, you know. So anyway, we did. And that, that was the start of Spicy Horse. And from the start, it just went great it was just awesome we we got great people um they did amazing work and you know all of sort of my vision or dream for you know what i thought we could accomplish here um it all worked out and yeah, it was it was just a lot of fun it's probably one of the proudest things um, that i've ever done in my life mm-hmm. well yeah reading about it i just thought it was i guess i thought it was particularly unique because i i like i suppose reading that they had all these people who are working as sort of, you know, outsourced talent for these big companies and things, it kind of fits into that, I don't know, the structure of the West utilizing China as a factory for its products. But then a lot of that talent seems to, like, not come through. Like you were saying, there are people with dreams of their own and, and like, things that they want to be creative with over there. And uh, I just thought it was very interesting to be able to hear that kind of other side of it for once. Yeah, I mean, the relationship that the U.S. has with China, I one of the things, you know, why I originally even left the U.S. and moved to Hong Kong, because I was really disgusted with U.S. foreign policy and how the U.S. was waging these endless wars in the Middle East and murdering all these innocent people and that my tax dollars were going to do that, right? So when I moved to Hong Kong and then to China, I naively thought, oh, this is a place where that sort of blowback and that sort of that sort of issue of U.S. interference in foreign affairs won't won't come to bother me, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you look at the situation today, and it's really incredible to me because, you know, I, I guarantee you, you will get people who write comments down below this podcast once you post it up, mm-hmm. who will be accusing me of being a CCP shill or on on the payroll of Xi Jinping or all kinds or I'm oh the other one they love to say is I'm going to get social credit points for saying positive things about right, China. Right, yeah. But 
what's really incredible to me about all these people and all this this animosity that's being generated in the West towards China is the lack of awareness of how totally interti- intertwined um, these two countries are. That you know, they the U.S. cannot function without the exports from China that yeah. that undergird everything you you know the the parts that go into your cars and obviously all the electronics that fill up your house and the clothing that you wear on your back and it's so much stuff that's produced in china and there are i think seventy thousand american companies registered for business here in china and of course all the big big names that everyone knows and the chinese don't have this this sort of antagonistic view towards americans the U.S. or the rest of the world that seems to be in the DNA of Americans to to look mm-hmm. everywhere they look they they need to find that there's competition there's a threat there's an antagonist you know it's sort of like Americans have it in their mind that everything in the world needs to fit neatly within the the script or the narrative outline of like a Top Gun movie right yeah yeah <laughs> America is good. And these bad guys over here are bad, and we got to blow them up a little bit to to get them some freedom or something, right? Mm. Um, and that's just not how the rest of the world operates. And then when you spend some time living outside of the U.S., as I've done, you you find that it's it's really a bizarre worldview that Americans have this antagonism towards other nations and other people because they're it's very one sided. That when you go around the world, you do not find other people operate under this sort of this sort of system. Right. This is uniquely American. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I digress. Um, I, I just, yeah, I'll go through the comments of this later and laugh at the people who, uh, who say that stuff. It, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I know it was a digression, but happy to continue it really because uh, I do wonder that point you made about, you know, how much, uh, you know, of the exports of China helps the U.S. out um and how they basically couldn't function without them. And I do wonder if a lot of the antagonism actually comes from some level of awareness that the U.S. can't function without other countries, (laughs) and that perhaps that is angering certain people for whatever reason. Well, I think that in the U.S. you have a lot of cognitive dissonance that exists on a subconscious level where people are told on the one hand that this is the shining, you know, beacon on the hill. It's 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 the land of freedom and opportunity. And yet at any moment if you look at the the global landscape, you will see that American weapons and American politics are driving death and destruction in multiple countries around the world. Um that innocent people are suffering constantly because of American foreign policy that America encircles half of the globe in, you know, 800 plus military bases, um, while at the same time screaming at the top of their lungs about the military planning and aggression of foreign nations who have no foreign military bases anywhere in the world, right? Right. It's and I and I feel like for a lot of the people who get really bent out of shape about this, that anger stems from the fact that they they know deep down inside that these these things I just said are totally at odds with one another. You cannot be this, you know, um, peace-loving, democracy-spreading, uh, rule-of-law-abiding nation, while at the same time acting like a total rogue 
asshole and blowing up <laughs> other people's property and killing people's families and breaking all the rules that you claim are are so sacrosanct, right? I I just mm-hmm. tweeted the other day there was an article about a series of islands um, called Chagos, which is over in the Indian Ocean. And it popped up because there was an article talking about how the people living on this island chain there were forcibly evicted from the islands, right? The natives who occupied the islands for generations were forcibly evicted by the Americans and the Brits, and that they now are trying to seek some sort of, you know, compensation for their pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, I I had noticed this island the other day because I was looking at sailing routes. I'm, I own a sailboat. I'm a sailor. And I was looking at sailing routes across the Indian Ocean. And there was this group of islands. And on the maps that I'm looking at, the navigation maps, it's encircled. And it says, don't go anywhere near these islands. Don't Not even if you're in distress and your ship is broken because you risk having your ship confiscated, being imprisoned, and also being fined. And why? Well, because the U.S. and the U.K. have decided that not only are they going to steal these islands, but they're now going to declare that you're not allowed to navigate anywhere near them. And why do I bring this up? Because it is at the heart of the hypocrisy around, for example, what the U.S. screams and yells about in regards to the South China Sea, where China says these are our islands, and the U.S. says you don't have the right to do that because that's not how international navigation rules work but then what are you guys doing over in the indian ocean with the chagos up you know islands right Mm -hmm. you're doing exactly what you're telling china they're they're doing um and yet china actually has more claim to the islands in the south china sea than the u.s has claim to islands in the indian ocean right it's just one example but these types of examples of hypocrisy are legend and there there's so many of them um, and I think that a lot of people who argue, you know, the whole China bad thing, they they just don't want to see it. They don't want to mm-hmm. see that, uh, you know, all these nations can do a bit of bad and it's all kind of relative. Yeah, and I guess I'll, I don't know. I, I will say, like, as somebody who has sort of Eastern European background and, and stuff, I'm not going to get into Russia right now, but... <laughs> um, as somebody who sort of, I suppose, watched people from, you know, my heritage and stuff being painted as the villains for sort of decades and decades, like, due to the Cold War and such, I guess I'm just very suspicious of, like, the propagandization of, you know, China bad, uh, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. It happens to whichever nation happens to be convenient to be the bad guy a lot of the time, so... I, I That's correct. Just, yeah, I, and just, I, yeah. I think, you know, like like you said, don't need to get into specifics, but I think that there's there really is, you know, the U.S. is masterful at propagandizing its citizens and also the world with regards to who is the bad guy. And I, I find that, you know, Chinese news reporting is very refreshing um, by comparison because in general they try to report on harmonious things um, and people will laugh people will laugh in the comments haha yeah you know china media is censored but you know oftentimes i just ask myself would i would i rather live in a place where the media is guided by the principle that people should spend their days not worrying about these things and 
not feeling angst and upset about these things and not driving people to be angry about these things versus living in a society where you know people's levels of anxiety and mental illness and depression and drug use and all of these things are astronomical because they're inside of this sort of propaganda matrix where they're constantly being told something someone or some nation is out to get them mm-hmm. be afraid be afraid be afraid all the time right yeah this was the point of the bad dla game that i made in hong kong which admittedly was not a good game but the core of the message of that game was meant to lampoon this idea of the american culture driven by fear and whatever you want to say about you know china's uh, media and uh, lack of freedom for the media here the one positive that i like about it and of course it has negatives of course there's this is not you know trying to say it's totally perfect but one of the positives that I find with it is that it does not operate on this sort of clickbaity, um, fear-driven algorithm, nor does it seek to brainwash its citizens to hate citizens in other countries. Because the way that the Chinese view it is that all of the countries of the world are potential customers for its mercantile vision of trading you know, goods and services and products with everybody. So for them to sit down and say, well, let's start demonizing the Americans to their worldview would be incredibly counterproductive because it then says, well, the Americans, if we hate them, why would we make them our customers, right? Mm-hmm. This, this kind of thing um, is, I think, you know, core to the difference in the thinking between the peoples of the two countries. And it's why, like, in the comments of this video, we're going to get people who are yelling at me that I'm a traitor or that I'm a CCP mm-hmm. shill or whatever. Where when you talk to people here and you say, what do you think about the U.S.? And they're like, I don't. Right. <laughs> I, why, why would I think about the U.S.? Because they don't. They, they have no reason to think about the U.S. And they have no idea that people in the U.S. are being brainwashed to hate them. And that's, that's a huge difference. Yeah. I, I guess I would always say, you know, like, I will say for the record, not a Russian supporter. <laughs> if people are wondering that by what I said earlier. Uh, but I you know and obviously i don't support a lot of the things that the chinese government has done and you know pretty much any government has a lot of things that i wouldn't support but i suppose it's just like be ethically pragmatic you know like look at a situation and and be able to objectively say one way or the other there's like i just don't see any point in being like blindly patriotic i I suppose so i agree with you 100 percent on that and that's where I think that the people listening to this who are getting ready to write CCP Shill in the comments <laughs> should understand. I'm not a CPC, you know, Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, or Communist Party China supporter in any sense of the word, any more than I would be a supporter of the U.S. government. In fact, I view myself as as a bit of a libertarian. Um, and also just a sort of citizen of the world. I like people, right? I'm not very interested in, like, cheerleading for any one particular government institution, and I also don't think that, like, the Chinese government or the Australian government or the Thai government or any of these governments should be held up and, been, you know, be like, this one is better than the other one. It's, you know, one of the things we always we joke about with sailboats, I'm going to go back to sailing stuff, is that every boat is a is a is a collection of compromises 
um, you can have a fast boat, but it's maybe not going to be a comfortable boat. Or you could have a very um, expensive boat that's got all kinds of comforts on board, but it's not going to be very fast. Or on and on, right? There's these trade-offs. Governments are exactly the same. You know, the Chinese government is really good at certain things. It's super efficient at, like, you know, massive infrastructure pro projects. Um, but maybe it's not as good at sort of the lower level social adjustments to improve people's lives on an individual basis. It's good at the big picture, not good at the individual. Maybe in the U.S. it's flipped around the other way. Where do you where do you come down on that? I don't know. I don't think there's a perfect government in the world. But I also think that for somebody who sits in China and says, hey, it turns out that China's not this giant organ harvesting abortion foreseen, um, you know, crazy want to take over the world country, I should be able to say that without people freaking out and saying that I've, you know, sold my soul to the devil. Um, at, at the same time that they should be able to say, hey, you know, life in the U.S. is not all homeless people and blowing up other people's uh, gas pipelines, right? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> It's, I, I just think it's funny that we as individuals fight amongst ourselves about these government entities to which we, we really have no control or connection. It is a little bit like my dad can beat up your dad at the end of the day. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, like, uh, it's like rooting for a sports team, you know, and buying the jerseys and stuff. But like the fucking sports team doesn't give a shit about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not on the team. <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, hopefully if, you know, that all upset you very much, you managed to skip through it or something, and now we'll sort of get back to, to talking about games a little bit. But, um... Sure. <laughs> so, uh, with... Just back to Spicy Horse, but with Grimm, uh, I suppose that game was, like, a little bit lighter and, and maybe a little more, like, child-friendly than people expected after Alice, uh, although it's still sort of tackles like dark topics was that uh intentional to make that game a little bit more accessible maybe well yeah i mean this goes back to what i was saying to you before about my my general desire for making games accessible um and and trying to lower the difficulty level um and make them more approachable for sure mm -hmm. and in terms of like alice and grim what do you enjoy about interpreting like reinterpreting old stories. So the thing I like about old stories, and it could be biblical or it could be fairy tales, um, but is that they oftentimes contain these hard-earned lessons on on the rules of life. Um, you know, it's one of the things I, I actually, um, Jordan Peterson has become very controversial and he says a lot of dumb things these days. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I he was does. aware of his work prior to his becoming famous in the way that he is these days. Um, he he'd written um, book a book on sort of character types, and um, now I've forgotten what the title of it was, but um, that that I found really interesting because it kind of went through the moral lessons that are contained within the literature of religion and fairy tales and things like that, and. Um, Joseph Campbell, you know, has also done this in his in his books. Um, and so when you go and you work with that material, you're kind of retelling the source code of survival for humans 
um, whether it be, you know, don't lie and don't cheat and, um, you know, don't covet another man's goat or whatever. Um, that, kind of that Jungian, type... I guess, right? What's that? Sort of Jungian, right? I think Carl Jung. Well, he talked hey, about him. But, you know, he's another interpreter. He wasn't necessarily a rule maker. So the rules for survival are set out in these ancient fairy tales or in these you know religious texts and there's a reason why certain religions survive to to you know go on like guess what the fastest growing religious uh group in china is right now it's christians and there's a reason why because that is a very party sort of mind virus full of a bunch of rules that really appeal to people when it comes to survival and success in life so why why i like to reinterpret those is because it's sort of core material it's it's trying to communicate to people on a level about those rules for survival the rules for you know some some amount of happiness um, that i find really really interesting and that i think if you can engage people with that stuff you might help them um they they might learn a little bit you know as to why lying for example can be so damaging um and you you might help them to lead a little bit of a better life right right well yeah i guess like what i was talking about with jung is that i think he he had this concept about archetypes where i guess he suggested that like a lot of our mental imagery uh is sourced sort of back from like our ancient selves like we have almost these uh recurring mental images that we apply to things um yeah know. i mean there's some guys who talk about um this idea that some of this stuff is encoded in our dna um some of the survival instinct stuff so like one of the things that's quite famous is the idea that like kittens or children can recognize and know to fear a snake yeah. um when they've never seen one before. And so, yeah, I think that it probably makes sense that, you know, some amount of a basic operating system is built into us for survival and that that carries on um, genetically as, as we, you know, as we pass that on to our children. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, when I'm telling these kinds of stories, I'm hopeful that we're sort of tapping into that, that basic programming um, and that it's, it's maybe waking that up for people and making them aware of the importance of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And with uh, Madness Returns, when you started working on that, was there a lot of stuff left over from Alice? Like, were there gameplay elements and environments that maybe you hadn't been able to implement in the first game that you wanted to bring into the second? Or was it sort of you started from scratch? Well, the distance in time between the, the production of the two games was so great that you basically have to go back to the drawing board and start over with imagining what's possible, right? Right. Just because, you know, 10 years went past and, and the amount of changes in the technology for scripting cinematic sequences and, you know, building levels and lighting things, I mean, it all, it all just changed so radically. So, I mean, we, we sort of started from... We started sort of started from the position of it's, you know, it's in the same genre, in the same vein, but technologically we need to start from scratch to see what can be accomplished, especially because it's Wonderland. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff you want to do 
um, with surrealism that you couldn't have done previously. But in terms of the narrative, we had already assembled a cast of characters and left enough loose threads um, from the first story that we knew there would be material in there to go back and, and pick it up mm-hmm. um, and, and start to weave a new, a new narrative. Um, you've talked uh, in other interviews about sort of your, your childhood being a bit of a bizarre juxtaposition between like fundamentalist Christian worldviews and then more eccentric like alternative lifestyles. How do you think that sort of split reality influenced your game design philosophy? Well, I, you know, I guess it influences everything. I've never really thought about it, how it would influence game design per se. But then, I mean, I, I don't always consider myself a game designer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you ask me, I, I don't know. I think, I think people who are technical game designers do a lot more spreadsheet work and a lot more sort of cerebral <laughs> game game puzzle, game designy type of stuff than I'm I'm interested in doing. So, you know, ultimately um mine my role I think is more about like a creative director and a writer. Uh, and how it's influenced me as a writer <clears throat> is, you know, a huge thing. Again, could probably go on for a whole podcast talking about, you know, the the foundations of one's creative output from that sort of background but i'd say that the thing the things about my childhood that were most painful or most disconcerting also ultimately ended up being the most fertile places in my imagination for you know the kinds of stories that i i want to tell or i enjoy telling or you know that i that i maybe am good at telling um and i think that's generally true in life that we oftentimes look at challenge or we look at adversity or we look at pain, uh, traumatic experiences as something that, you know, we want to shy away from and that have no value and that, you know, should should be put as far away from us as possible. Um, I think my childhood and how that went over into my creative process taught me differently. It taught me that those are catalysts, you know, that what we normally consider a negative event of something painful or traumatic, um, those offer really good sort of opportunities for transformation and for growth and also for for creative output. Because um, a lot of times that's what I think creative output is. It's it's the end of the, it's the pipe out of which flows all the stuff that you process um, but you have to start with something to process. I, I don't. I'm not saying like you have to go through a bad life and have traumatic experiences to be a good writer or whatever. But that's how it came out for me. So I, I think that answers the question. Yeah, maybe more about finding ways to utilize the trauma, I guess, in positive ways <laughs> than like you need to be traumatized in order to be creative, kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I guess I will just ask the question because I'm sure anyone listening wants me to ask the question. Uh, in terms of Alice 3, are there any new developments with it uh, versus sort of the last couple of years or is it basically in the same place? Well, we just did a huge update a week or two ago, which was the release of the 100% complete 
design bible for Alice Asylum. So that is a 414-page epic, you know, graphic presentation of basically like what the game is, except it's in book format, right? Right. And that's what our pre-production team has been working on for the last couple of years. So it was a massive undertaking by six artists that are funded by our supporters over on Patreon. Um, you know, we shared the development uh, with constant updates as that was getting produced. And now that it's done, we've sent it off to a number of different potential publishers and financiers alongside the announcement that we found a potential development partner here in Shanghai uh, with a company called Virtuous. Mm -hmm. And that we've outlined a very clear vision for what is the game, how much is it going to cost to develop, how long is it going to take to develop, and where and how are we going to develop it, right? So it's the it's sort of the the culmination or the the end of the process of everything that we've been doing for pre-production to date. And it takes us into a new phase, which is to go out and to pitch that material and hopefully find somebody who is willing to fund it um so that we can get it into development but it's it's a big ask you know we're asking for like 40 million dollars us mm -hmm. to fund a new game and i honestly don't know if the appetite for that is out there or not you know the the games industry kind of moves in cycles and there's periods of time where you know narrative driven story games are everybody wants to make one and there's times where no one wants to touch them um so I, I'm not sure what the result of this will be, but I, I do feel confident that if there's somebody out there who's interested in funding this type of product, um, they would be hard-pressed to find a better presentation for this type of product. Um, so yeah, we're, we're hopeful that uh, it'll get in front of the right eyeballs and someone will pick it up. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that all sounds pretty positive for fans of the series, uh, at least. Definitely some big, big movements. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 we're doing everything we can. You know, at, at the end of the day, I, I don't own it. I don't, I don't own the, the rights. Um, EA does. And it's ultimately really up to them um, to make it where the rights are in a position where something new can get done and or maybe they would even fund something new. Um, but for my personal role in this, I'm I feel like I'm coming to an end on it because I I no longer want to be the person responsible for trying to get it made after I've done this effort. If this gets it done, that's great. It was my goal um, from the start. If it continues to flounder and, and can't get made, there's not much else that I personally can do to yeah. To make that a reality and and you know to be honest like frankly i i get to be a little bit tired of being the torchbearer for the entire franchise when it often opens me up to criticism from people who are like why are you taking so long to do this you know <laughs> right yeah and i just think like you know hey guy i you know it's not i'm not actually i don't get paid for doing this right i'm not it's not what keeps me alive and so it's somewhat of a passion project, and it's something that I do on behalf of the fans. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to be the person who is ultimately and solely responsible for this, because, like I said, I, I don't own it. So every day that I spend building more and more content and trying to build up a pitch that proves the value of this IP 
is another day I spend increasing the value of something that is owned by someone else. And I have no guarantee. I have no guarantee that 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 EA or anyone else will pick this up. I also have no guarantee that even if they do pick it up, they'll involve me in any fashion, right? Mm-hmm. They're not obligated to. So, um, yeah, I really hope that by the end of this year, uh, 2023, that it, it comes to some sort of resolution. Either it's very clear that it's not going to happen, it's never going to happen, or it becomes very clear that someone is going to pick it up and make it happen. And if it does get picked up and it does go forward, I'll say right here, I think it's the first time I've said this publicly, but I'm not particularly interested in being involved in the development, like the day-to-day development. I do not want to be involved in that. I I think there are younger, brighter, and more um, sort of driven people out there who would be better positioned to do that. Like Alex Crowley, who's, who's been my design partner on this, um, since the start, he would be a great person to run with it. Um, but for me, like, I feel like I've said and done all I can do inside that design Bible in terms of my vision for what the new game would be. And I don't necessarily need to be involved right, um, right. beyond that in the next one. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's been, you know, something you've been working on for such long periods and with, you know, such yeah, I mean, little happening with it for such long periods and dealing with uh, so many difficulties and yeah you know backseat game designers who've never game designed telling you how it should be done <laughs> i'm sure yeah, well the one i love is the are, are the group of people who tell me that i'm operating some sort of a scam and i don't understand how they think that scam works because any and all money that comes from Patreon just goes to pay the artists. And if it didn't go to pay the artists, then those artists would complain or we wouldn't have artists, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and then the other one is that somehow the fact that we've built a successful plush company at the same time that this is this Alice work has been going on is is linked into the scam. And again, I think like, but that's an online retail business. Like if we made a plush some you know one of the things i read is like we're using patreon money to make plush toys and i think are you sure you've done the math on that because (laughs) we're using the customer's money that they put into the website to purchase the thing to make the plush toy and if we didn't do that and we didn't deliver the product then again we'd have people complaining about a whole different issue um so i don't know it's the the complaints we get on this stuff are sometimes very silly Uh, I know yeah, your throat is very sore, but uh, I did want to talk very quickly about the plushes because um, they are quite interesting to me. Could you just you know very quickly sort of talk about how that initial concept came about? Yeah, well, we did a plush as a reward for our patrons that was the distressed rabbit um, inspired by the little rabbit that you see Alice holding at the beginning of the first Alice game. Um, For legal and technical reasons, I need to tell you that it's not that rabbit, but it is inspired by that rabbit. (laughs) Um, So we did did that inspired by rabbit. And and then we put it in the Mysterious Shop, which I had already had the Mysterious Shop running since 2015. Since we had closed down Spicy Horse, my then partner now wife um she and i had been doing a variety of 
you know, fashion items. She's a fashion designer, right? So she came out of, comes out of that world. And so we did a couple of things that are sort of fashion, jewelry, you know, purses and bags and stuff like that. And that, that was doing quite well. I and mean, it was paying the bills and, you know, nothing to complain about. But the rabbit really started to sell like crazy. And then people started asking us to make other rabbits and other designs. And early on, I decided that based on my experience with making games and this sort of like issue of too many chefs in the kitchen and, you know, designers fighting with each other about, you know, which direction to go. I came up with this notion that we were going to do everything based on customer feedback via the, this thing called crowd design. Mm-hmm. And so, so we did that. We started saying, look, we don't design these toys. You do. Here's an initial sketch. Now give us your feedback and we'll drive that feedback towards a final product. And people love that, right? It really drives their engagement towards the thing from day one. Um, and then, of course, we started getting more and more requests. Well, can you do a rabbit based on this theme or that theme? And the more of those requests we answered, the more engagement we got and the more rabbits we're selling um, to the point now where 20, 2022, last year, was my most successful year in terms of financial success of my entire life. Mm-hmm. And purely driven by the success of this this plush brand that we built, and um, so it's been an incredible story. We we've had a lot of fun with it, and it's a, it's a really small team. It's myself and my wife, and we have one designer artist, Jennifer, um, and we have a guy Martin here in Shanghai who does customer support, and um, yeah, we have a few artists that we hire um, from with proceeds from the sales of the rabbits a lot of times from marginalized groups and then that's it it's a really tight little small company and we we have a lot of fun interacting with our customers and we're we're tackling a lot of really interesting you know design themes that i think a lot of people previously have haven't thought to tackle or have been afraid to tackle mm-hmm. yeah well i mean what interested me about them was sort of the the mental health um angle of them where you have sort of uh you know, like an anxiety rabbit and, you know, uh, mental health is sort of a key element of the design features of them. And I think that like, it's important for people with mental health issues to see other people with them and to see it represented and to see that it exists and it's okay that it exists. Um, but I have seen that there's been like some adversity towards it, which is odd to me, but what, why do you think, uh, that is that people are adverse to these, uh, representations of mental health well first of all what you said it is is exactly right we we should be making these difficult topics more visible we should be making it where people are more comfortable to talk about those those things and to admit to themselves and to others that they may be struggling with something and it this goes back to what you and i were talking about earlier that i believe that oftentimes difficulties are powerful catalysts for change but in order for that catalyst to function, the first thing you have to do is embrace, recognize and embrace the problem. So if you have anxiety, for example, a lot of people will tell themselves that, you know, they don't have anxiety or that anxiety is something um, for someone else. Anxiety is not something I'm dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's kind of funny, you know, this notion of embracing these issues, but with our rabbits, it's sort of like, we'll snuggle them too, you know, <laughs> hold them close and, and, and snuggle them. Um, but it is, to me, I think, 
important to have something like a totem, um, something that you can hold on to that represents this issue that you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. And and I think that a lot of people, when they've come to criticize us, once they realize what it is we're trying to do, they they turn their criticism around because the goal here, first of all, is that people are making requests of us to make these things because they want to feel seen, right? They they want to have visibility. And if you go and you read the comments of the people who reply to the new designs that we put up and they're shocked, they're like, oh my God, I never thought anybody would do anything in relation to this, you know, this this mental or physical issue that I'm struggling with. And so to be seen and to be recognized to them is incredibly powerful. And then you mm-hmm. see that they're forming little communities around these individual designs. But the other thing that we're finding is there's a lot of people who pop up in the comments and say, I didn't realize this was a thing and I've struggled with this forever. And to now know that I'm not alone and that I've got a community and that the thing I'm dealing with has a name and that maybe I can go to see a specialist about this. Um, that happens all the time now, all mm, the time wow. where people are like, oh, my God, my thing I thought was just me isn't just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's going on around this. And I I feel really proud of it. It's the same reason I feel proud of the Alice games. You know, people play those games and they recognize a lot of their own traumas and their own issues in there. And then they feel like they're a part of something larger. They're not alone. And they feel like they can get something cathartic out of that. They can get that transformation process out of playing that game. Or in this case now, out of joining this community and snuggling these bunnies that represent these issues. Yeah, I think, I also think like, I talked about a little bit with the Alice game, but I think there's something powerful about making psychological problems tangible and physical and and real and visible because I think you do a lot of telling yourself it's it's not real it's just a thought or it's just a feeling or whatever and you're pushed into like I guess trying to hide this thing rather than letting it occur and then like dealing with it which uh, which i think like so yeah so there's a book i just finished um listening to it's called the myth of normal and i highly recommend it on this topic and he talks about this that a lot of the diseases that we see in the world where they be whether they be cancers or inflammatory diseases and like um they oftentimes come from the suppression of emotion or the suppression of trauma and when you when you look at it, it's exactly what you just said of people trying to say it's not real or I don't want to deal with it. But the longer you go on doing that, the sicker your mind body kind of system becomes because not recognizing that something is out of balance and not addressing it, it, it makes people sick. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I just take a pill and it goes away. But if it's and this goes back to what we were talking about before. If it's a memory of a trauma, or if it's a trauma that occurred to you as a child or something, and you've repressed it and you've you've shoved it down for so long, um, it can be manifesting itself inside of your physical body, you know, 20, 30 years later, and you don't even know why you suddenly have this this, you know, malady, whatever illness or or whatever it is. Um, so again, like you said, having a physical thing that you hold on to to represent that and to say to yourself, yeah, this problem I have is real. But the, the best thing about saying a problem is real is that once it's real, once you recognize it as real, 
you can address it. You can start to work with it. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that when people see these designs that we're doing, they recognize that that's one of the, the larger goals that exists within this is for people to be able to hold these up and say, this is my problem. This is the problem I have. It doesn't have to be a forever problem either. You know, I, I see people saying like, oh, you know, you're selling, you know, some sort of identity and people are, are, are just adopting these identities. No, I mean, maybe there's some people where that's happening, but I think a lot of people, um, and it depends on the situation, but there's a lot of people who want to embrace this and then they don't want to be a victim of, of the thing. They want to be, it's integrated or they're a survivor of it as opposed to being a victim of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I almost feel like it wouldn't happen if it was like <laughs> physical illnesses as well. There's still a bit of a weirdness in terms of accepting that mental illness is even a real thing for a lot of people, I feel like. Sure. Um... Well, uh, I will, this may be a difficult one to answer. This is the question I put to all of my guests since they're usually doom centric. Um, but you may not even, you may not even be able to come, like come up with an answer for this. Uh, <laughs> what would be your favorite doom monster from the roster? Uh, and why? Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I remember all the doom monsters. Um, I think from from just a kind of memory perspective, just the classic brown imps, you know, the little guys that throw the fireballs. Um, I just always liked them because of the the kind of sound effect that they made at a distance when they were walking around. It was that kind of pig chortle sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it and it and it always was quite scary to me. Um, but that plus just you know the fact they threw a fireball and I, I thought their death animations and stuff like that were always pretty good. Um, and, and you could slaughter lots of them at once. You know, I, I always liked them. I was never that big a fan of sort of the zombified space marine stuff. I always liked the more demonic creatures. Mm -hmm. um, but I was always a big fan of cannon, cannon fodder. You know, I, I just thought it was fun being able to mow lots of things down as opposed to having some tanky kind of, you know, creature that took a lot of damage and was on screen for a long time. So, yeah, I, I, I can answer that question. I, I'd say it was just the, the standard imp. That's a good answer. Underrepresented in these answers, but but a good one. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, sorry for keeping you with your sore throat, but I'm so happy you managed to soldier through because uh, it was a really interesting interview. I'm sure there will be, as you said, a lot of comments uh, <laughs> below this one, but you know we will take them in stride. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Sure, no problem. And thank you so much for having me on. And uh, with that, I'm going to go to gargle some throat medicine of some sort. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I, I hope you have a swift recovery. Thanks so much. And uh, to everyone listening, I'll be back uh, with another guest next week. So thank you to you as well. And goodbye. Well, Pixdrift has subscribed to the highest level on Patreon. They are now a Doom God. So I'm, I'm giving them a spicy shout-out at the end of the podcast, as promised. Uh, if you'd like your own shout-out, uh, you're going to have to match 
Pixtures, Incredible Generosity. So that's really on you. But uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you to all my patrons, but mostly and really only Pixtures. But yeah, thank you to everyone.